Hello everyone. I have the pleasure to be here with Robert Nicholson today. He is one of um, our founding board members and also the executive director of the Philos Project. Um, so we are here today and we're going to be talking a little bit about kind of what he's passionate about. Um, but first, Robert, could you tell me a little bit about the Philos Project, kind of your story and how you got started? Sure. So Philos is three and a half years old, founded it in 2014, about a month after ISIS invaded Iraq. Mm -hmm. Uh, and it actually came together quite naturally because the purpose in founding Philos was trying to create a place for American Christians to learn more about the Middle East, connect more to the region, uh, and ultimately to travel there and to begin to advocate for the issues that we care about. And so when ISIS invaded, literally right after Philos uh, launched, we realized that this organization, this work, has never been needed more than it's needed now. And so it was, uh, for me, it was, it was kind of the culmination of my own faith journey realizing the Middle Easternness of Christianity mm -hmm. and how much this region matters to me, not just as an American, but, but as a Christian, that made me really want to sort of take, take this information to the rest of, of, of the church. No, that's amazing. So you're talking a little bit about the Middle East and ISIS. Can you explain to us a little bit, maybe like, kind of what is the stage and who are the players kind of on that stage? In the Middle East? Yes. Yeah. So the, the thing about the Middle East, unlike Africa or Asia or Latin America, is that all of the issues, the geopolitical issues, the armies, the states, all, it's all kind of overlaid with this uh, veneer of religion. Okay. So everything's just a little bit different in the Middle East. It's not just this state versus that state. There's you know, those two states and the religions or the sects to which they belong. So everything's more complicated in the Middle East. It's of course the mm -hmm. oldest part of the world uh, where civilization started, and that also gives it kind of this extra layer of complication. But Right now, today, you know, if I had to kind of paint in very broad brushstrokes, I would say that the region is in the midst of really a sort of a civil war. Mm -hmm. uh, and in, unlike most civil wars where there are two sides, there's actually four or five sides. Mm -hmm. um, and it's incredibly complex, but um, it's, it's, it's a mix of regional powers, meaning like countries in the Middle East that are fighting each other, um, but also outside powers that have gotten involved and made this even even more complicated. And so right now there's, you know, I, I sometimes call it an Islamic civil war, mm -hmm. and it's, there's, there's, a, there's one dimension of the, of the struggle in the Middle East right now is between two different kinds of Muslims, mm -hmm. um, roughly speaking Sunnis and Shiites, who are battling for what they see as their own survival, but ultimately is some sort of control over the region. So on the Shiite side, you have Iran and its allies. On the Sunni side, you have Saudi Arabia and its allies. Um, add to that mix Turkey, uh, which mm -hmm. is kind of its own thing, uh, yeah. trying to reboot its own empire in the Middle East. And then you have these sort of non-state actors, these terrorist groups like ISIS, like Al-Qaeda, who are kind of roving in the midst, taking advantage of this dynamic or that to, to suit their own ends. Where we as Americans fit in, is we're roughly on the side of the Sunni alliance. So Saudi Arabia, Egypt, Jordan, Israel, ironically, is in the midst of this Islamic coalition mm -hmm. um, because of the opposition to Iran. And so we, uh, uh, you know, we're roughly on that side. And on the other side, the, the Shiite axis, the sort of the alliance of states, you know, Iran, Syria, mm -hmm. uh, Hezbollah, and Lebanon, uh, their external patron is Russia. And so you have not only this crazy dynamic happening in the region, but you have the U.S. kind of weighing in on this side, Russia weighing in, weighing in on this side, 
and the stakes are kind of raised even higher. Um, and I think it's that, you know, mix of regional competition and then these two outside powers being involved that is what makes everything so volatile right now. And of course, the, the, where it all comes together is in Syria. Hmm. The worst humanitarian crisis of our day, it's all happening in Syria. Syria is like the Thunderdome, you know, it's just hmm. full war against all. Uh, everybody's kind of in there playing the game. And, you know, the task for us as Americans and even as Christians is to figure out, okay, what's really happening and, and how can we sort of be involved in, in a positive way? Yeah, for sure. So you were explaining all the different powers that are going on in the Middle East and things like that, and then also all the different religions that are happening there. So what is the current state of like Christianity and Christians in that realm in the Middle East? So um, roughly speaking, it's declining. Christianity has been declining in the region. You know, go back to the year 600 AD, the region was mostly Christian, actually, which is hard to picture a Christian Middle East. We don't think of it that way. But it was, and over time, slowly, that percentage has decreased until now you have just a small percentage of Christians in the region. And Christians are, are like Jews for that matter. You know, Jews are in Israel and they have the, the benefits of being sovereign and having an army and being able to, you know, draw a line and protect themselves. But just like Jews as minorities in the region, Christians, they're not part of this big civil war. They have to sort of figure it out. They have to, it's a game of survival for Christians of the Middle East. And wherever you live, you could be in Iraq, you could be in Syria, Lebanon, Egypt, Jordan. Um, your job is basically to figure out how do I survive this next year? Who's the toughest guy in the block that I need to kind of be nice to so that when the other guy in the neighborhood comes over to take over this neighborhood, this guy's going to protect me. And it sounds very crude, but that's been the name of the game for Christian life in the Middle East for over a thousand years. Today, uh, it's it's even more difficult because like could take a place like Syria. You don't know who's who, who's fighting who. Are we with the Kurds? Are we? And so Christians, um, you know, they've been playing this game for a long time. They've actually gotten very good at it, knowing who to kind of side with. But it's gotten so crazy and so bad. And what ISIS did was so horrific that many Christians, unfortunately, are just saying, you know what, enough. Like we're leaving, we're gonna move to Australia. Yes, this is my homeland, this is where my community is, this is where my language is, but I just I can't do it anymore. We're gone. My kids, they need a future. And so you're seeing a, a real uh, increase in the Christian exodus from the region, which if you care about Middle East Christendom and you think that Christianity is no less of a religion than Judaism and, and Islam, and they should, Christians should have a place in the Middle East, then it's deeply worrisome. And mm -hmm. it's something that should bother you as a Christian not just because of the humanitarian situation, but because these are your brothers and sisters in Christ. And they, they're the original Christians. You know, they're the, they literally are in the land of, of the Middle East, where Abraham walked, where, where all of the prophets were, where Jesus walked. And so for us at the Philos Project, the, the plight of Christians of the Middle East is very much linked to the survival of Israel. And it's something we're always telling people who care about Israel, care about Israel, care about the Jews, but the Christians are deeply connected to this story as well. That is so interesting. And so with that, what, what are some of the main issues that you see in the region that like we as Americans really need to keep kind of our, our pulse, like keep a pulse on to, mm. to know about and keep updated? I would say this ongoing, I'm calling it a civil war, which is a very kind of broad term, but keeping an eye on that, which, which has a lot to do with religion and a lot to do with uh, power struggles between states. Which way is that going? Um, the big uh, 
sort of elephant in the room in that is is Iran. So Iran, a lot of people don't know much about Iran. They kind of hear it here and there. But Iran is an Islamic republic, and it has been since um, uh, 1979. It's basically an Islamic state. So we think of ISIS as Islamic state. Iran is an Islamic state. It's just a Shiite Islamic state. Uh, it's a theocracy of some kind. And Iran is, in addition to being an Islamic republic, what they call in you know political science terms a revisionist power, meaning it's not content with the status quo. They don't want you know to stop at their own borders and just rule their country. They want to expand around the region. They, they're not content to stay at home. They want to sort of take the old order and flip it upside down. Um, you know, kind of expand their own empire. So as Iran expands around the region. Uh, and as other powers like Israel, like Saudi Arabia, like the United States try to counter Iran, that story will in large part dictate where the region's going to go over the next uh, few years. So that's, that's one issue to keep an eye on. Um, of course, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict uh, is a big issue. It's an issue, obviously, in passages that's it's touched on quite a bit. Mm -hmm. And at Philos, we talk about it often. Um, but uh, really trying to figure out where this is going to go. Donald Trump. Uh, comes into office, sort of, you know, he's, he's, he's a specialist at kind of smashing what's old and bringing in something new. Mm -hmm. And so trying to figure out where that process is going uh, is, is a big question. Um, we talked about Christians. In the midst of all of this craziness, what is going to be the future of minorities in the Middle East? Is the Middle East going to ultimately be a, you know, monolithic, you know, Islamic region? Or do minorities have a place? And by minorities, I don't actually only mean Christians and Jews and Yazidis, but all, even those Muslims who who see pluralism in their own tradition and want to want to live beside Jews and uh, Christians. There are, if you look at data uh, in the in the Arab world, there's roughly one in four um, Muslims. That's a low estimate, conservative estimate. Roughly one in four Muslims are with us, let's say, meaning they want they want pluralism, they want coexistence. Some of them are religious, some of them are not religious at all. You know, they may even be atheists, but they, they identify as Muslims, and they roughly want to be friends with the people who live next door. Those people, that 25%, that 30%, those are the people we need to identify and to begin to work with. Those are the people who, if there is a future for minorities in the Middle East, those are the people that will help us get there. So you, you touched briefly on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Is there like some recent developments that we should know about, or what are the most recent developments in that conflict? Yeah, well, it's always <laughs> if everything else is complicated, that's twice as complicated. So I mentioned Trump. Trump is the big kind of you know boulder in the pond that just sort of <laughs> changes the whole dynamic. So he comes in, uh, seems prepared, you know, in everyone's eyes to just kind of scrap everything and start from scratch. And the two players, both Israel and the Palestinian Authority, have been scrambling to catch up and figure out what does this guy want, where is he going to bring this. Um, Jared Kushner uh, is sort of Trump's point person on the issue. Also Jason Greenblatt. These are two names you should know if you care about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Uh, they're the ones from the American side who are kind of doing the deal, right? Um, it's unclear exactly what Trump's big peace plan is. There's little drips that have been coming out. Uh, but whatever it is, the, the Palestinians, the Palestinian Authority, uh, at least those leaders that are currently in power, are not happy with it. So President Abbas um, 
who, by the way, 70% of his own people want him to resign. Uh, President Abbas is uh, deeply unhappy with, with President Trump. And even in a recent speech, he said uh, in Arabic, he said, may your house be destroyed, Trump, and uh, said, you know, pretty much anything nasty he could say, he said it. He has accused the United States of trying to make a deal that is completely lopsided and unfair to the Palestinians. I've heard other Palestinians tell me that that's actually not the case. Uh, but what President Abbas has said in his anger at Trump is to say, you know what? The U.S. isn't the only country out there that can mediate this peace deal. I'm going to talk to Russia, and I'm going to start talking to the other people who are out there. And that dynamic, that sort of turning to Russia, um, is likely to play a role uh, in this. And I would say, in general, in the Middle East, whatever's happening on the ground, there's now, because of recent events in Syria, there's now, over top of it all, a Russia-U.S. dynamic that needs to be taken into account. And it's affecting the conflict in, in Israeli-Palestinian area uh, equally as much. In Israel, uh, the government, the current government, under Prime Minister Netanyahu, is under fire in a way. If you follow any sort of Israeli media, uh, he's you know he's got a lot of opponents. It's it's politics. It's sort of internal Israeli politics that you know for us as Americans seem uh, kind of you know you know uninteresting. But uh, it's it's affecting the possibility for peace internally in Israel as well. You know, as if you're a prime minister and you're under fire, there's accusations. The last thing you want to do is make some grand gesture for peace. Now, Israel's always been ready to make peace with the Palestinians. Palestinians have not, conversely, always been ready to make peace with Israel. Um, but in the current political moment in Israel, uh, the prime minister is in a, sort of in a bad spot. And so this is not the first thing that he's dealing with. So the Trump peace plan is going to be uh, released in, in uh, coming days. We'll see the outlines of it and, and what he's putting forth, and we'll see what the reactions are from the people on the ground. In the meantime, one last thing I'll say about this is that um, in the absence of a master deal, mm -hmm. Israelis and Palestinians are getting along. They're getting by. You would be surprised at the amount of coordination on the security front uh, and even on the political front that happens every single day, even today as we're sitting here, uh, between Israelis and Palestinians on the ground. So lest anyone think that this is just, you know, Jews, Arabs, there's a line and everybody hates everybody. There's a lot happening day to day on the ground that is not being taken into account at the United Nations. So it's something everybody always needs to keep in mind is the practical uh, kind of modus vivendi that's, that's come about between Israelis and Palestinians. And so you were saying that they're, they're getting along on the ground. So what do you think some of the reasons that the greater stage kind of shows them as like, this is never going to work, they're not getting along. What do you think some of the reasons they are? So, I mean, getting along even is a, I mean, it's a very broad thing. I mean, there's lots of times when they're not getting along. There's people who don't ever get along. But there, there's much more cooperation than people think there is. Um, on, the, on the big stage, look, I mean, people have, there's, there's political calculations, there's personality and ego calculations, you know. Take President Abbas. You know, you, this guy has been offered peace a number of times. He said no a number of times. And one looks at him and you ask this question, like, what you, why, you know, you're talking to Israelis all the time. Like, why don't you just make this deal? Why, when you get to the United Nations, does it become this huge, you know, you know dr drama that you put on? Um, President Abbas is seen by his people, as I mentioned, as basically illegitimate. He's far past his term in office uh, should have lasted. 
and he really has no legacy. People look at him the day he came into office and today, and they say, literally, what did you do? We're no better off than we were then. Corruption is at an all-time high. Um, the Palestinian people have split between Hamas and Gaza and uh, Fatah or the PLO in, in West Bank. Like, not only is it the same, it's worse than when you... So President Abbas is in a bind where he's, you know, he's 80, what is he, 83. He's trying to figure out what is my legacy going to be. Um, and rather than double down on peace, he seems pretty content to kind of go down with the ship uh, on, on sort of the cause of, of Palestine. Now, I speak, the younger you go in Palestinian society, the less like Abbas people are. Hmm. The young Palestinian generation is much more pragmatic as a rule, you know, there's exceptions, but as a rule, much more practical, much more ready to figure out some imperfect deal with the Israelis, you know, live and let live. I just want to live a life, have a business, have a school on my block that has books and my kids yeah. can go to. And so, you know, a lot of the efforts uh, to do Israeli-Palestinian peace, Palestinian peace have been implemented from the top down. What I and others call for is an attempt to build Israeli-Palestinian peace from the ground up, mm -hmm. finding those people in Palestinian society who aren't interested in the drama, who just want to figure out how do we live with each other and begin to build upward rather than sort of push downward. And I think there's a lot of opportunity once our sort of mentality shifts about the way that we want to do this thing. No, that's really that's really good. I know I know we have passages here. We we really do care about these issues, and that's why we're talking to you today. Um, we do care about the Christians in the Middle East, and then also the conflict that's going on. So, what are a few um, great resources that we can kind of look into so we can stay updated? Sure. I mean, following the news is a big thing. It's 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 one of the most boring but most important thing. If you really care about the Middle East, you have to have a rough sense about what's going on. Even if you're not way down in the weeds, there's some basic things. So, you know, following Israel, a great source is the Times of Israel, uh, Jerusalem Post. Very easy, very uh, dynamic, great journalism. Find it online. Um, uh, when it comes to the region, there's 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 a, a, a platform called Al Arabiya. It's A L Arabiya, A R A B I Y A, uh, which does great reporting on the region, sort of all the different dynamics. Um, one of the great American outlets that covers the Middle East these days, the one that I actually like the most, is The Atlantic. Mm -hmm. They have some great writers on staff. It's pretty even keel. I don't agree with everything they say, but some really great reporting, uh, kind of behind-the-scenes type stuff that you don't see in a lot of other outlets. I think there are also some more standalone resources, more uh, evergreen. Uh, one that I know Passages is connected to, and I know some students have been showing, in the Passages Network is this film called Faith Keepers, which if you do care about Christians of the Middle East and you want really badly to tell your friends but you don't know enough to, to give a full presentation or you're afraid they're going to ask something you don't know, the best thing you can do is to get this movie Faith Keepers and we can help you get it um, and show it. You have to just push play and people show up, you watch the movie and then you have a conversation about, wow, what is, how important this is and what does this mean for us and how do we as a little group, as a community, as a church, um, what do we do about it? How do we get involved? And I think that that's, uh, you know, we all want to change the world, but it starts from little things like that, showing a film, figuring out what's going on, hearing the story, seeing the faces, and then looking in the mirror and saying, all right, so what's my obligation now? So, yeah, you mentioned the Faith Keepers thing as a way that, you know, we as students and um, can get involved. 
Um, are there other specific um, like things that we can do? So it's what can I do today or tomorrow to make a difference? That's that is the question, right? I mean, that's yeah. what we're all asking. Like we, we care about it, but what do we do? Mm -hmm. So I kind of mentioned uh, already the education part, which mm -hmm. sometimes makes people's eyes roll like, OK, raise awareness, educate, like read stuff. Mm -hmm. Nobody wants to do that. Uh, but educating yourself is the very first step. You can't control anything in the world. This is a life principle. You can't control anything in the world except yourself. Mm -hmm. If you don't know the issue, you're not going to be able to communicate it to anyone. Mm -hmm. So whatever the issue is, um, let's take Christian persecution, find out more. You don't have to have a PhD, but you need to know the rough outline of the thing. And I think in this case, this movie Faith Keepers is, is very important. The next thing you can do, and if you, th you, know, you think of a Christian, you know, when you have a, a good message, mm -hmm. uh, what do you do with it? You take it. You, know? you take it to the, to the next mm -hmm. block, to the next person. You make disciples uh, of all men. And I think in this case, as you learn the issues, you need to be a bearer of that message to others. And I think the, one of the most important people you can talk to, if you're a Passages alum, uh, is your pastor or your priest. You need to go to your pastor. I guarantee you he's heard about the issue, but he probably hasn't really uh, gotten involved. He doesn't know that much. You'd be surprised at how little your pastor knows about uh, some of the issues. Uh, and you say, hey, pastor, priest, father, you know, do you know about this issue? This is really important. I learned about it when I went on my trip. Um, here's a resource for you to watch. Here's a website for you to look at. Um, and I would love to share sort of a story, a testimony for five minutes or 10 minutes the next time uh, you know, there's, there's room uh, on stage. You'd be surprised at how far that could go. You get, you know, you, somebody who has the passion, comes into your church. You get your pastor excited about it, and then you get the congregation excited about it. Suddenly you have a community of people who can do all sorts of things, raise awareness from other people, uh, raise money, uh, advocate, be in lobby even. Uh, so engage. You have a community. It's your church. Engage your church. That's your little piece of real estate on earth. Own it. Um, and I think the, the Faith Keepers thing, again, you just show it. Just show the film. I think the other thing you can do, you know, a lot of people think, man, I want to help Middle Easterners, but they forget that there's Middle Easterners also in your neighborhood. So I guarantee you, if you looked in the phone book, if people do that anymore, I don't think they'd look in the phone book. There's no phone books. But if you, if you go on Google, uh, you know, Rabbi Google, and you ask, you know, closest Assyrian church or Syriac church or Maronite church or Coptic church or Arab Christian church, I guarantee you in some sort of days drive from where you are, there is a church, probably much closer than that. Uh, when even dealing with the Israeli issue, there's a local Jewish community. Jews have a remarkable, you, you know, you climb to the top of the Himalayas, there's a synagogue up there. Um, Jewish community and even like a more specific Israeli community. They're all over the place. You have a community, you have a city, you may not live in Washington DC or New York City, but you have people in your local community that you can engage, begin building relationships with, and really a lot of that is just showing up, asking them for coffee and saying, tell me about yourself, tell me about your community. What's going on? What should I know that I don't know? You'd be surprised at how much a little uh, meeting like that can do for building bridges between people. Um, Another thing, raise money. A lot of people either think that's a cop-out or it's, it's boring. There is an almost infinite need for aid for Christians of the Middle East. Um, everything from Band-Aids and blankets to education for kids. And uh, get, if you get involved with the Philos Project, we have all kinds of uh, uh, different outlets for that, different fellows working on projects in different countries. 
um, that, that you can get involved with and see like tangible impact. Um, there's also some advocacy. There's there's legislation out there. If you're the ad advocacy type, the lobbying mm -hmm. type, there's a bill called HR 390 that's uh, does, that was written to help victims of genocide, victims of ISIS in Iraq and Syria. HR 390. It's stuck in the Senate. Talk to your elected elected official. Get him out of get it out of the Senate. Get this bill passed. It's money. It's aid. It's it's help. It's attention for these communities, and also for the Coptic community, the Egyptian Christian community. A huge need for them. There's another bill, HR 673, um, you know, talking to people saying, look, I don't, I don't only care about Israel, I care about these Christians as well, and for me they're one thing. It's one story. If you can communicate that to the people in your world, you will have done a phenomenal service for the people over there who need our help. That is amazing. That is amazing. I just want to thank you so much, Robert, for um, just talking with us. This has been really enlightening for me um, and I hope for all of you as well. And he mentioned some very specific, like, how can you get involved? So if you actually go to passagesisrael.org backslash what can I do, we will have a page up there for you with all the things that he mentioned on how you can get involved. So thank you again, Robert. Thank you, Rachel. And uh, thank you guys for listening in.